Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast brought to you by ITL Coaching and Performance. My name is George Darden. I'm an endurance athlete and coach here in Atlanta, Georgia. It's been a long time. Shouldn't have left you without some good research to run, swim, and bike to. Uh, but today is the first day of school for a lot of systems here around Atlanta, and so I figured it seems an appropriate time to go ahead and talk about some research. Um, I uh, hope everybody's had a good summer. Hope you've been training a lot. Hope your first big target races have been going well for you. Um, 10 weeks, less than 10 weeks now to the Chicago Marathon, which is my big focus race of the year. I'm dealing with injuries, but trying to manage everything the best I can here. So we'll see how that goes. If you're curious about whether you can run a good marathon based largely on cross-training, stay tuned because that's exactly what I'm doing now, getting ready for Chicago. So we will see. Um, Lots of news over the course of the last short while that you probably saw. It's been so many months. Uh, There's been several things that I took note of, at least mental notes of, bringing up and talking about in the podcast because uh, I figured they would be of interest to the uh, wider community here. Um, But uh, some of them have sort of fallen out of of, uh, relevance at this point. Uh, But two things I did want to mention that you might have seen in the news over the course of the last little while. One is the the hammer, uh, the H-A-M apostrophe R, the highest annual mileage record. Uh, That was completed back in May uh, by Amanda Corker. I had told you before that you need to be following Amanda Corker on Strava and on Facebook. Um, and certainly I recommend that still, uh, even though she is now done with her hammer record. But uh, Amanda Corker, basically between May of 2016 and May of 2017, averaged 235 miles a day on her bike. Uh, ended up going about 86,500 miles total um, and set the new highest annual mileage record uh, on a bike uh, that's ever been done. Um, interestingly enough, a big record was made just last year. Um, a guy named Kurt Siervogel uh, did 76,076 miles, 76,076 miles uh, total. Um, and Amanda Corker rode with him one day and kind of got the idea for it, and then she ended up doing it herself and, and breaking his record by more than 10,000 miles. So a pretty incredible thing. Um, she is pretty fascinating too. I think you should check her out. Um, she is only 24 years old, and so you wouldn't expect this sort of drive uh, from somebody who's only 24 years old. Um, back in 2011, she was uh, she and her dad were out on a bike ride together, and so doing the math, she must have only been about uh, 19 years old at that point. Uh, and they were hit by a car, um, and her dad had a broken back and has had all sorts of surgeries and complications as a result of that. And she... Uh, had a traumatic brain injury. Um, and so part of, of her doing this uh, and setting this goal with a great deal of support from her family, her dad basically crewed her the entire time, um, is, is trying to come back from that and, and reclaim a lot of herself after it was taken from her uh, by that driver back in 2011. So um, amazing accomplishment. Interestingly enough, she got to the end uh, in May, she, she, she got to the end of the 365 days, and she, uh, she kept on going. Um, and if you follow her on Strava, I'm sure you saw this. She basically said, okay, I want to get 100,000 miles. Let's see how long it takes me to get 100,000 miles. And, of course, you know, riding almost 250 miles a day, um, it only took her a couple more weeks, uh, about a month or more, to, to get to, uh, to 100,000 miles total. Uh, she popped up on my Strava news feed the other day, and she had done a, merely a 50-mile ride, which seems so strange. Um, but, uh, yeah, an amazing accomplishment by, by Amanda Corker there that I think you should check out. 
Interestingly, um, there is a, uh, a guy right now, I think his name is Steven Abramson, um, and he's also logging all of his stuff on, on Strava uh, right now as well. Now, there are people, he's a British guy, and he's, he's riding all over England uh, and Great Britain in order to, to, to set the record. Amanda Corker, it's sort of interesting, she completed this record by simply riding laps around Tampa's Flatwoods Park. It's a seven-mile loop. Uh, my wife did a double Ironman there um, uh, in 2012, um, in early 2012, yeah. Um, and uh, she just did lap after lap after lap after lap, and she just racked up all of her miles on that same seven-mile stretch of road. Now, there's nothing wrong with that, obviously. I think that's a that's a pretty good way to go about it. This other guy, Stephen Abramson, um, and Kurt Searvogel, who did it before, uh, before uh, Amanda Corker did, um, they did it by sort of riding all over the place. Um, Kurt Searvogel did some laps in certain places, but um, he was riding from state to state and, and covered a lot of the country, whereas Amanda Corker didn't really cover any of the country. She just uh, went in this one little space in, in Tampa. Now, there are some people, and I totally disagree with this, there are some people who say that, that that delegitimizes her record, um, and that Stephen Abramson, who's also putting in about 250 miles a day right now, um, if he ends up passing Kurt Searvogel's record, that that should be considered to be the hammer, the highest annual mileage record. Um, I disagree with that. Um, I think what he's doing is impressive, and the fact that he's climbing up and down hills and all that sort of thing, whereas everything that the men of Corker did was flat. Um, I think that's impressive. I think that's great. Um, but the record is the highest annual mileage record, and she certainly covered all of those miles, and she was not drafting off people while she was doing it. So um, she, she has met the requirements of the record, and she certainly deserves all the credit she, uh, she can get. 13 hours a day she spent on her bike every single day for 365 days in a row. Um, she deserves a lot of credit and a lot of praise for what it is she did. I submit, by the way, that the people that, that have an issue with the way that Amanda Corker went about the record have more of an issue with the fact that she's a woman and she now holds the overall record for HAMR um, as opposed to Kurt Searvogel, who is amazing but uh, and still holds the record for the men. Um, anyway, uh, you might have also seen, speaking of cycling and news of cycling, a different piece of news, a sadder piece of news. Um, about one of my favorite cyclists, a guy named Michele Scarponi. Uh, Michele Scarponi uh, has been on a variety of teams. He's an Italian world tour rider. Um, he's finished uh, on the podium in the Giro d'Italia before, uh, and he's won several smaller uh, one-week stage races and, and one-day races in and around Europe. Um, he was on the Astana team, um, and uh, he was uh, on a training ride about two or three months ago uh, and was hit by a van and was killed. Um, I was sorry to see that, and I bring it up not to to um, to, to make a big message about, about cycling, that sort of thing, but to, because I was a fan of his, um, and I, I liked him particularly, um, and I was obviously moved by the by, by his, his death. Um, I actually found out, subsequent to his death, um, when I was reading some of his obituaries, that he has twin sons, identical twin sons, uh, that are only a few months older than mine, uh, which of course made uh, that news that much harder to handle, and of course that much more gripping to me personally. Um, a couple other kind of quick pieces of news, research-related uh, things that you might have missed here uh, over the course of the past several months. There was some, some interesting research came out about running, saving your life that got shared a lot on social media, so you probably saw it. But just in case you didn't, there was a couple of researchers, um, a group of researchers, including a, an academician from Iowa State, a cardiologist from New Orleans, who have actually published research in the past talking about how dangerous running can be for your long-term health. 
Um, and so that's kind of interesting what I'm about to say, that, that they have a history of saying that running is bad for you. Um, they crunched the numbers on 55,000 different people, um, 55,000 55, different medical records, um, and they found that, that uh, for every minute you run, it adds seven minutes to your life. Um, for every se- hour you run, it adds seven hours to your life, um, which is kind of an incredible thing. Um, if you add, uh, if you do 2.5 hours a week of running for 50 years, um, which most of us won't be runners for 50 years, but but we'll see. 2.5 hours a week uh, of running for 50 years, you'd only spend about three quarters of a year running, um, which of course seems like a lot, but but it's not all that much. Um, it would add doing that amount of running would add about three years to your life. Uh, so you'd live three years longer if you spent 0.74 years of your life running over the course of 50 years. Um, and, of course, that's that 7 to 1 ratio that we talked about. Now, incidentally, side note on that, uh, 2.5 hours a week was kind of the, the threshold at which after that, 4 hours a week, 5 hours a week, 10 hours a week, they didn't find any big gains after that. Um, and so it tended to stay at a, at, at about three years for four point seven four seven four years of running. So um, the point two five um, or two point five hours a week is about what they said. That's where your benefits are maximum, and then going beyond that, you're not really going to get those longevity benefits any more than you would if you were only doing two point five hours a week. Now, side note on that. I submit that if you're running more than 2.5 hours a week, you probably have things you're trying to do with your life besides just health, whether you're just trying to do with your running besides just uh, increase the length of your life. You're probably trying to be competitive. You're probably trying to fulfill other goals and all that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, 2.5 hours a week. Now, in addition, I think there were two other really interesting aspects of this that, that might have gotten missed if, uh, if you only read the headlines of the articles that you saw shared on Facebook. First one, um, of those 55,000 people, they went through all these various factors that differentiated the people from one another uh, in order to determine which factors would lower their rates of premature death. Um, now, premature death means obviously dying before, before your time to die. I mean, everybody's ultimately going to die. And so if you ever see a study that says this and this lowers your risk of death, nothing lowers your risk of death. Um, everybody has the same risk of death. It's 100%, uh, uh, alas. But but premature death, dying early, dying before you have, have, have reached the life expectancy in the United States. Um, they looked at all these different factors, and of the 55,000 people, they said that, that if all the people in that group who smoked quit smoking, that would prevent about 11% of all premature deaths in the United States which is significant, which is huge. 11% of all premature deaths in the United States, if just smokers would just stop smoking, that's, that's massive. If all overweight people got their body mass index under 25, that would percent, prevent about 8% of premature deaths in the United States. Again, pretty significant number. If all people who have high blood pressure were to able to get their high blood pressure under control by whatever means, that would that would bring uh, that that would prevent 15% of premature deaths in the United States. So that's obviously once again a significant number. However, the biggest factor of all, bigger than smoking, bigger than high blood pressure, bigger than body mass index obesity, the biggest factor of all was not running. If all the people who didn't run were to start running, we would reduce all premature deaths in the United States by 16%. So let me. I, I give you a pause there to let that sink in. But again, 
running is better for you than stopping smoking, getting your weight under control, and of course, bring your high, your your blood pressure under control. Now, that's in part because because running helps do all those things. Um, it's sort of a catch-all that, that that can help you with your high blood pressure and your obesity. And nobody wants to smoke and run, so um, uh, it's certainly because of that. But again. If all the people who didn't run started running, 16% of premature deaths uh, out of the 55,000 people who were part of this massive study could have been prevented. Um, in addition, the other really interesting thing about this study, the other really interesting thing about this particular piece of research that, that might have gotten lost in the, the, the back pages um, is that they actually separated those 55,000 people into four different groups. Um, once they found that running was so impactful, they, they said, well, let's dig a little bit more into the numbers here about running. And so they, they, they separated the, the, the 55,000 into four groups. Number one, inactive non-runners. So people who were sedentary generally and didn't run. Number two, inactive runners. So this would be people who have like a long commute and, and a sitting job and all that sort of thing. And they don't really do any other exercise, but they do, do, they do run. And then you had active non-runners. And this included not only people who had very active jobs like waitresses and, and, and teachers, um, but also people who, who were active in other ways. They went to the gym or something else like that, other modes of exercise. And then, of course, they had active runners. So people who had you know high, highly active jobs who maybe walked to and from work, all that sort of thing, um, and then also ran, um, also spent up to 2.5 hours a week running. Um, and what they found was that inactive runners, so people who ran even though they had jobs that were fairly inactive or commutes or, or, or spent time in meetings and, and, and behind the desk, they had a much lower risk, much lower risk of premature death than active non-runners. So in other words, you can do nothing throughout the course of the day and you go for a run in the afternoon and you will lower your chance of premature death versus people who are super active throughout the day, even doing other types of exercise throughout the course of the day. Um, those people will have a higher uh, rate of premature death than folks who are inactive but still run. Um, it's it's one of those things, this study was, that, that you read it and you're like, wow, why doesn't everybody not run? <laughs> Um, uh, and of course the answer to that is that, that, uh, it does cause injuries such as I'm struggling with right now and, and other things I imagine too. Um, in addition, a, another study, last piece of news I'll kind of share with you that, that, that I, I've noticed over the course of the past six months. And this was put back on my radar after I saw it back in December. Um, but a friend of mine emailed it to me this past week, um, and, and asked me what I thought about it. Um, and so I figured I'd just mention it here. Uh, the research on running in brains. Um, there was a study that was published last December uh, by some scientists at the University of Arizona. Uh, and they took 11 competitive runners um, and they compared them to 11 non-runners. Um, so non-active sedentary people. Um, competitive runners versus sedentary people. Um, and they gave them like a, a math problem. Um, and so they kind of woke up their brains a little bit. And then they had them sit quietly with an MRI. Um, and so they would just sort of sit in a dark room kind of quietly, no stimulation or anything, with, a, with an MRI for about six minutes. Um, so not a super long MRI here. Um, and what they found was that the 11 competitive runners had significantly more brain activity um, than did the non-competitive uh, or the, non, the sedentary people. Um, and they... they uh, it showed more brain activity, both coordinated 
um, and in particular parts. Um, and it was the, the regions that help in working memory, multitasking, attention, decision making, and processing of visual info. Um, and so, in other words, said said more bluntly, the runners had more brain power than the sedentary people did. Um, and so the scientists, I thought it was interesting, concluded that running helps develop those regions of the brain. Um, and they, they, they wrote at length about how that was a surprising conclusion because music, for example, and playing instruments has been shown, shown to do those same things, has been shown to increase those neural connections and to, to, to coordinate your brain better so that you can uh, have a better working memory, be better at multitasking, uh, attention, decision-making, and, and processing of visual info. And they said, you know, it's, it's interesting to us. We didn't think that running took that much brain power. And so you wouldn't think that because, you know, everybody learns how to run pretty early and, and, and that sort of thing. Um, you wouldn't think that running would necessarily create these sorts of, of connections and, and increase people's brain power. Um, but it does, according to their study. I actually take something different from it. Um, and I wonder about whether those brain connections were already there prior to those runners becoming competitive runners. In other words, the scientists concluded that running led to the increased brain power. I'm wondering whether the increased brain power is what led these runners to become competitive runners. Because again, these they took guys they took guys from the, the, the University of Arizona cross country team. I mean so these are high end competitive runners here. These aren't these aren't uh, competitive runners versus non competitive runners here. Um, and that's actually what I think would be most interested in. Can you find a difference between competitive runners and non competitive runners when it comes to the, their brain wiring? Um, you know, speaking from personal experience, I, I uh, among the qualities that I have, good and bad, one of them is that I'm I'm, I'm reflective, um, and I found that quality in a lot of distance runners and endurance athletes. Um, and so I wonder, is it because I have spent so many hours, hundreds of hours of my life, by myself, quietly inside my own head while riding a bike or swimming or while running, um, or? Uh, was I already reflective, and the reason why I'm able to spend that time is because uh, my my brain is predisposed for it. Um, which came first, the reflectiveness or, or the running? Um, am I more reflective as a result of my running, or am I a better runner as a result of my reflectiveness? Um, so I don't know, um, and, and that's something that I'm hoping they'll do a follow-up study with that, and if they do, I'll uh, keep an eye out for it and share it with you. Um, I want to talk a little bit today um, about... Uh, tech, technology, um, because I did have a conversation yesterday. Um, the ITL has a has a trail run that meets at, at 7.30 at the Visitor Center at, um, at Kennesaw Mountain. Um, and I was hanging out before the trail, and we usually start running about 7.45, um, talking to a couple of people about Strava. Um, and, and different people have different ideas of Strava, um, but one thing that I think that most of us can agree upon, particularly coaches can agree upon, is that it potentially can throw off training. Um, because you can imagine somebody who's supposed to be doing an easy day, but then they get onto a particular hill and they start thinking about Strava course records and all that sort of thing, um, and, and they start pushing too hard and suddenly your easy day is no longer an easy day and that throws off your entire weekly training schedule. And so... Um, I was having that conversation with, with a couple of athletes, and it kind of made me want to start talking about, um, to, to talk a little bit about, about, about tech and technology. Um, and then, in addition, the theme of tech actually uh, uh, gave me the opportunity to bring in a couple of other pieces of research that I've happened across over the course of the last couple of uh, months. Um, 
first of all, let's talk about some low-tech stuff. Um, low-tech things that might improve your performance um, as a runner, as a triathlete, as an endurance athlete, cyclist, swimmer. Um, first of all, I found an interesting study about cheering. Um, now, I think that all of us uh, have been in races uh, and have been cheerleaders at races. And, and first of all, all of us have been in races before and we've had somebody cheer for us in a way that probably boosted us and helped us. And then we've also all been in races where people cheered for us and it made no difference. And then we've also all probably been in races where somebody cheered for us and it kind of annoyed us and might have even made our performance worse. Uh, I remember a race I was doing more than 20 years ago when I was in college. uh, And I ran very even splits when I was in college. I I still run even splits now, but it's more because I'm too old to run all that fast anymore. Um, But in college, this, this... I was running a 5K indoors at the University of Florida, and this this group of about 10 guys went out pretty fast, about eight or nine seconds faster in that first mile than I did. Um, and so they put you know 50 yards or something on me in that in that first mile. And I remember passing a girl on our team, and I can see her face. I can see her standing on the side of the track now, and it's been more than 20 years. Um, and she goes, "Come on, George, you can do it," with exactly that intonation. And I wanted to stop and go, "Yeah, I know I can do it." I'm going to catch and beat all of those guys. And sure enough, over the course of the next eight or nine minutes, I did catch and beat all those guys because they got out too fast and I, and I ran even splits. Um, and, and it was so gripping to me that still I remember it 20 years later. I even saw that woman. Um, she was then a girl. She's now a woman. I saw her about three or four months ago. Um, and that thought crossed my mind. Um, now, I didn't bring it up with her. But, um, but, but still, that's a very vivid memory of mine. Uh, likewise, there was another time I was standing when I was a coach at Grady High School. I was standing on the side of the cross-country course at the state cross-country meet. And a runner who was a very good runner and was, was uh, finishing the top five at the, the state meet, she came running by me with just over, just under the three-mile mark, basically. So just before the three miles. So just over a tenth of a mile to go in the 5K race. Uh, and this runner went on to, to run at the University of Georgia um, and, and had a successful collegiate career. Um, but she had, for the first time, about two weeks prior, broken 20 minutes in the 5K. Um, and here she comes at the state meet. She's about to go past the the um, the three-mile mark um, at about 18.10. And so, in other words, she is right here on the verge of breaking 19 minutes, only only a couple of weeks after breaking 20 minutes for the first time. And so she's running past me, and, and like a lot of runners, she kind of has her head down, and she's staring at the ground three feet in front of her and, and compete with the people around her. And, and I looked at her, and I said, come on, Kia, uh, kick it in, and you can break 19. And I said the words break 19, and she looked directly up and took off like a shot. Um, because and, and so that was clearly the right thing for me to say. And I didn't know that necessarily. I wasn't you know making a... a, a, a a heavily weighed psychological decision here, um, but but that was something that I thought might be inspiring to her, to her, and clearly it was. She did end up breaking uh, 19 minutes, by the way, uh, and finished in the top five that day, which was great. Um, but anyway, the point being is that cheering can certainly make a difference, positive and negative, and and that's something that's never really been studied all that much. Well, recently there was a study that came out uh, from scientists, researchers at the University of Miami. Um, and they basically did three different setups. Here's how they set it up. They, they took a bunch of uh, athletes, 20 people I think it was, um, and they put them in these, these little leg extension flexion machines. Um, if you've done leg extensions before, they look like that except for they, they provide resistance in both directions. Um, and so you extend, you flex, you extend, you flex, you extend, you flex. Um, and they had them do them uh, at three different paces 
one at I want to say ninety, one at one sixty, and one at three hundred, um, and and uh, different paces, basically different kind of cadences. Um, and then they had three different cheers that they would offer them as they were they were trying to you know keep their leg flexion going here and trying to lift more weights and trying to move their legs faster. Um, the first one was let's go fast. The second one was was, was go as hard as you can. And the third one goes was go as hard and as fast as you can. Um, and I wish I could tell you that they they really found a lot of stuff from this, but the only thing they they found was that at the highest speed they found that going fast or telling the athlete, encouraging the athlete to go fast, go as fast as you can, um, that actually pr- created a difference. Um, the other ones, uh, at the lower speeds and, and the other things they said, didn't really make as much of a difference, unfortunately. And so, uh, not a whole lot I can tell you, except to say uh, that, hey, researchers are looking at this now, and so, kind of like what I said a few minutes ago, if they end up doing a follow-up study or something like that, uh, I'll be sure to let you know about that. Another kind of low-tech thing that has come up over the course of the past few months uh, has to do with with shoelacing. Um, now, I grew out of the 1990s, and I'm going to talk, I've talked about that before, I'll talk more about it in just a second here. I, I, I became a distance runner in the early 1990s, or around 1990, uh, and so most of my sensibilities, my traditional sensibilities about running um, were formed during that time. Now, I've challenged a lot of those sensibilities myself, um, having been a cyclist and then been a triathlete, which I think is a good thing, but you will find that both athletes and coaches tend to approach endurance sports generally the same way that or or in the same manner that they would normally approach the sport from which they came um that is if you have uh if you're being coached in triathlon by somebody who has a swimming background you'll find that they'll be very focused on form and relaxation and things like that because that's such a crucial part of swimming um, if you have somebody who, who comes from a running background, they're going to be really, really focused on hard days hard and easy days easy um, because that's such a fundamental part of, of, of running. If you have somebody who comes from a cycling background, they're going to tell you to go really, 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 really hard for like two weeks and then do virtually nothing for like a week. Um, and so, so these big, giant training blocks followed by massive amounts of recovery. Um, that's very much cycling mentality in the way that cyclists have, have traditionally trained. And so... Um, even when coaches try to get over those mindsets a little bit, they have a hard time getting over those mindsets. And so one of those for me actually had to do with lacing. I had always been told in the 1990s um, at running camp and at other places um, and, and by my coaches and, and, and other folks um, that you essentially should put your shoe on as loosely as you possibly can. Um, basically strong enough to keep it on your foot and that's about it. Um, and this came up because there's an athlete, an ITL athlete that I see running on the track who would tie her shoes so tightly that it literally would change the way that she would run. Um, she would, she, her foot wouldn't even move, um, because, because she would tie her shoes so tightly. And I would see her before a workout and she like tugging on her laces really, really, really hard. And I was like, you got to knock that off. Um, and I would tell her what I had always been told. That was it, that, that, um, that you had to tie them the, really loosely. And that's, that was the best way to wear them. Well, I finally decided after years of saying this I was going to look up the research on it. I'm glad that I did, but I wish I had sooner because it turns out I was kind of telling her the wrong thing here. Um, the, a a uh, scientist in Germany, and this is back in 2008, um, took 20 distance runners and he put them all on the treadmill uh, and had them all moving at 8-minute mile pace. Um, and he had them do um, a few different combos of lacing, um, but then he took data on the impact force, so like how hard their feet were hitting the ground, on their pronation, 
Um, and then on the pressure under the sole of the foot, um, the, the, the pressure they actually felt on their foot from the, uh, from the shoes. Um, and uh, the different lacing combinations, there were six of them. One was just a regular lacing, you know, using the six eyelets um, uh, that was loose. Another one was regular, but it was like normal. Um, uh, another one was regular, but it was considered tight. Another one was really loose in that it was used just two eyelets. And so basically they went from the bottom to the middle to the top. And that was it. They skipped most of the lacing. Um, and then another one was, was three eyelets. Um, or they, they went from uh, the bottom, two places in the middle and the top. Um, and then one last one. Um, they did what's called a heel lock loop that some of you might have seen before. Uh, it's where you lace up your shoes and you make a little loop up at the top and you put your, you put your laces through the loops. Um, they found that tighter, that, that lacing your shoes more tightly, the tight but regular way of doing it, um, it reduced your pronation speed, which is not that big a deal. Pronation is kind of a red herring when it comes to, to running, um, and we can talk about why that is if you'd like some other time. Um, but more importantly, it reduced impact loads. And so in other words, your foot didn't hit the ground as hard when your shoe was tied on your foot a little bit more tightly. Um, and they, they speculated the reason for that, the scientists speculated the reason for that, was that, that when you tie your foot tightly inside your shoe, it pulls your foot more deeply into your shoe and, and enables the structure of your shoe to work more in concert with your foot, um, uh, which is kind of an interesting thing as well. Now, the drawback is that people said their shoes were a lot more uncomfortable. I mean, they reported them to being a lot more uncomfortable when they were when they were tied really tightly. In addition, and I think this is a risk with that athlete that I saw that was wrenching on her shoes every time, um, it could promote injury across the top of your foot. Um, and certainly, if it's if it's you know literally changing the way you run, it can it can promote injury as well. Um, and so so you want to avoid injury across the top of your foot. And so they did a follow up study in which they looked a little bit more at these heel lock ways of, of, of lacing. And what they found is that if you do those heel lock ways of lacing, where you basically make a little loop with the top two eyelets, um, and then you put your, your shoelaces through the, the heel loop, you can lace at a normal uh, amount of tightness, um, and it will have the same impact load reducing effect as if you lace it normally, but with real uh, a, a lot of tightness. Um, and so... You know, by all means, experiment with different things. Um, but the takeaway from this study, and I'm not going to recommend it necessarily, but the takeaway from this study is that that you, you might want to try the uh, the heel lock um, uh, lacing pattern. Um, I've been experimenting with it a little bit myself. First, in the shoes that I wear, just as I walk around, um, and I haven't actually converted over yet in my uh, my running shoes yet because old habits die hard. Um, so let's talk about some high tech though. Um, I thought it was sort of interesting looking at, at different things in, in high tech and, and there are so many things in the world right now that you can use to measure your effort and your, your, your data and all that sort of thing. So it follows that I'm often asked by uh, new runners or even athletes that I've coached for a long time, what data is most important um, and what data is worthwhile and what data is useful. Um, I think I was also thinking about this a little bit more recently because uh, someone I know posted an article um, uh, from Hanson's. Um, and, and Hanson's, which is a well-known uh, training group, a well-known um, uh, coaching group uh, based in, I think, Michigan, um, they posted an article on their website just last week talking about how heart rate data 
is really not all that worthwhile. Um, and that they, like a lot of traditional runners and a lot of traditional uh, coaches uh, who come from the 1990s or earlier uh, in running, think that the only thing that really matters is your rate of perceived exertion. And that's what you need to be working on as a runner. Um, and of course, there, there's there's some validity to that, but but it was very striking to me that, that they were so dismissive of, of heart rate data. Um, at the same time, I'm very dismissive of, of power data in running right now. Um, there's a new product out called the Stride, which is supposedly measures the, uh, the, the, the power that you produce while running. Um, and and um, I think that the, the technology is just not quite there yet, even though power on cycling is, is extremely valuable. Um, uh, there's some new products that have just hit the market um, that are endorsed by some pretty high-profile professional triathletes um, called Halo Science, which is supposed to be uh, uh, priming your neurons. Um, it's supposed to be training your brain to actually uh, perform at a higher level. Now, I find that very interesting because, as we talked about on this podcast before, the brain plays a crucial role in how much effort um, you're going to be able to produce and, and what your performance is ultimately going to be. And so the idea of training it, yes, absolutely, train it, stimulate it, make it stronger. Um, but whether putting on this sort of funky-looking set of headphones that, that kind of massage the top of your head while you're on your bike or while you're on the run uh, is going to, to promote better uh, concentration uh, while racing, I'm not certain about that. So I'm still reading about it, and I'll let you know if I come to some sort of hard and fast conclusion on that. But anyway... Um, I did want to mention a study um, that I found um, out of the UK, um, and it was nearly 1,200 respondents who use activity trackers um, that, that track their activity some way, um, and um, it was interesting to see what it is that people are tracking when they, when they do use their activity trackers. Um, 1,200 respondents, they found that 99.1%, so virtually everyone who uses some sort of activity tracker is using it to track distance. Uh, about 90% of people are using it to track average pace. Now, I find that one interesting because I don't think average pace matters all that much. Um, I think it's generally important, um, but I think particularly when it comes to something like easy pace or a recovery day, uh, you shouldn't be looking at your pace all that much. Um, uh, activity time, 79%. Look at total activity duration and total activity time. Uh, and 59% of people who use activity trackers, according to this one study in the UK, um, are using it to track their route via GPS, um, which to me is is really striking. Um, the first GPS devices that came out uh, came out in 2003. Um, and so in less than 15 years, uh, we've gone from a, a time when, when nobody was using GPS stuff to about 50% of people who are runners use some sort of activity tracking and about 60% of those and so doing the math real quick that's 30% of all runners on the planet are using GPS technology to track their route um, that's a significant amount of, of people who are who are getting GPS and tracking their route um, so uh, I, I thought that was sort of interesting 76.4% of the people in this one study said that they do it simply for the sake of tracking um, whatever it is they're tracking, distance, pace, time, route, they're doing it simply to track. 61% say they use activity trackers to actually track against their goals. Um, and this is the one that stood out to me, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about it here in a minute. 50% use activity trackers as a motivator to exercise. 
Um, and then there was a much smaller percentage, about 12% use activity trackers to challenge themselves and others in competition, in other words, games and that sort of thing. And so that would be, Zwift would be obviously a very obvious example of that, but um, uploading stuff on, on to, to sites in order to then be able to compete virtually against other people, about 12% of people that are using activity trackers, according to this one study, are using it for that. Um, but what I thought was interesting was it was about the motivation piece. Like I said, about 50% of people use activity trackers, be they Garmin's or Suntos or whatever it happens to be, as motivators to exercise. Um, about 95% of the respondents said that if their technology fails, it would not stop them from exercising. Um, but about 42% of the sample indicated that technology failures do affect their motivation. Um, technology failures are just a fundamental part of using high tech. Um, if any of you have ever used tech before, you certainly know that. Your battery goes dead. You don't find signals. There's just a breakdown between your heart rate monitor and your your your, your watch or whatever it happens to be. 42% of the sample, um, so that's about 500 or so out of 1,200 respondents, said that technology effectors reduce their motivation. Um, it affects their motivation in a negative way. Um, and so that kind of got me thinking a lot about um, the relationship between the use of technology and motivation um, and how using technology can potentially be a motivator for you. Um, we have an ongoing conversation on the ITL coaches about people being overly reliant on technology. Um, um, and, and I think that that's a real thing. I think there is such a thing as being overly reliant on technology. Um, but at the same time, I heard a different study um, that was uh, out of the University of Chicago. And it has to do with, with short-term rewards. Um, and generally speaking, inside the field of psychology, um, generally speaking, not entirely, but generally speaking, inside the field of psychology, intrinsic motivation, intrinsic rewards, and long-term rewards are considered to be better than, more motivating than, and ultimately more enriching than, than short-term rewards. Um, that long-term rewards that require intrinsic motivation for you to accomplish um, ultimately lead to to higher levels of performance and achievement on all sorts of different things. Um, and it's always been kind of believed that, yes, indeed, runners, distance runners, endurance athletes, triathletes, have to be focused on those long-term rewards and have to have some level of intrinsic motivation because if they didn't, they wouldn't be able to train for the races that they do the way that you require to train for the races that you do. Um, you can't wake up the weekend before a, a marathon and say, oh, I need to train for that marathon this weekend. No, you have to decide six months ahead of time, okay, I'm going to be running this marathon and I want to run it well and these are what my goals are and this is the path I'm going to follow to get there. You have to be motivated by this long-term goal, not the short-term reward here. Um, and so... There's some interesting research, though, like I was saying, about uh, out of the University of Chicago uh, that now suggests that, that, yes, while long-term rewards are more important and they will still lead to higher levels of achievement and performance, that short-term rewards can be important stepping stones towards long-term success and rewards. Um, and and short-term rewards, um, which have always been kind of demonized, um, can in fact uh, provide important bridges between where you are now and where you want to be six months, a year, four years down the road. Um, and so in that light, I was thinking about halo science and, and running power meters and all that sort of thing. Um, and I've kind of come to the conclusion that any technology is good technology 
if it motivates you to do the work. <laughs> Any technology, that if, if, it, if it provides you the reward that you need to get you farther down the road towards that long-term goal, then I'm actually okay with it. Um, you know, We tend to set, set short-term goals and benchmark goals and all that sort of thing towards long-term goals. Um, I don't see why there's anything wrong with us setting short-term rewards for uh, towards long-term goals and long-term rewards as well. Um, in that light, it kind of makes me think differently about why it is we even do like tune-up races and that sort of thing. It's always thought about, oh, it's a test of your fitness. Da, da, da. Well, maybe it's it's because we need some sort of short-term reward. We need some sort of short-term feedback that will that will continue to motivate us towards our long-term goals. And I think maybe technology does that too. Uh, maybe being able to, to look on your activity tracker and see how far you ran and see how it felt compared to what your heart rate was or how fast it was compared to the last time you ran this same route uh, can provide you that, that short-term gain. Even if it's uh, something like like uh, the power numbers in running, which like I said, I think are a little bit dodgy right now because technology is not quite there. If you see, oh, well, I produced three more watts than I did last time, six more watts than I did last time. Oh, my overall wattage production this week was was um, averaged 50 watts higher than it did before. Um, if that motivates you to continue to get out there and work towards your long-term goal, it's probably a good thing. And there you have the back-to-school edition of the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. Thanks for listening. Hope you learned something today that's useful. Hope your kids also learned something today that was useful if, in fact, they went back to school. Um, don't forget to follow us on Twitter, at Pleasant Podcast. Uh, check out the blog, mostpleasantexhaustion.blogspot.com. Um, or uh, go on over to Facebook. We uh, probably get more activity on Facebook than any place else, and I put more things on Facebook than anywhere else. So facebook.com slash pleasantpodcast. Check out our sponsors too, ITL Coaching and Performance at itlcoaching.com, uh, on Twitter at itlcoaching, and, and on Facebook, facebook.com slash itlcoachingandperformance. Um, also, check out my wife, the other sponsor, facebook.com slash kctravelplannermev. Um, you can also drop her a line at kctravelplanner at gmail.com. Uh, she spells K-C-K-A-C-I-E, kctravelplanner at gmail.com. Remember, all of her services are free. She would love to book you not only a trip to Disney World, but also a cruise or a ski vacation or, better yet, your race accommodations. Uh, she has got us all set up for Chicago in less than 10 weeks. Uh, thanks again for listening. See you next time.